think that a church full of people in Alabama could ever be a part of the gospel work that they're doing, but you can be. And let me encourage you to pray and think about how you would give to them uh, on Easter as we receive the, the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Our goal this year as a church is $10,000. And you'd be sensitive to what God would, would have you give. You may think, Brother Jesse, you know, our family's struggling right now and I don't have much to give. The Lord knows about that. It's not about the amount that we give. It never is. It's about the heart with which we give. Because I promise you, God's math is different than ours. And he can do, he can do great things with, with little things. So you give what you're able to. And God will bless it. And God will use it for His glory. We're going to pray together today for our regular offering. And ask for God's blessings on the service going forward on the preaching of the Word today. And so let's bow our heads and let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Brother Michael Boisdale, would you pray for us, sir? You know, your memory is a funny thing, isn't it? Um, it's not always reliable. Sometimes you just can't recall the things you need to know. Um, all of us have had that experience of, of sitting down to take a test and just blanking. You studied, maybe, but it's just not there. It's a miserable feeling, isn't it? 
all of us have looked at somebody, maybe at church, something might have happened to some of you this morning, looked them in the eye, and their name just didn't come up. There's no better way to remember somebody's name than to forget it to their face once. It'll stick after that. But while sometimes your memory doesn't bring back the things you think you need, there's also this weird thing that happens in your memory where it won't let you forget things you wish you couldn't remember. One of the memories that, that I would really like to let go is from <clears throat> July of 1997. I don't remember exactly the date, but I know that it occurred on a Monday night because I would have been 11 years old. I would have turned 12 the summer of uh, July 1997. And at that age, for me, Monday night was wrestling night. And this is vivid to me because I wasn't watching wrestling. And our family that night, my mom, my dad, my sister, all of us were scheduled to go fishing on the pontoon boat of the man who was the chairman of the deacons at the church where my dad pastored. His name was Paul Dellinger. Paul Dellinger had a pontoon boat, which made him like the coolest person in the world that wasn't on wrestling when you're, you know, 11 years old. And Brother Paul, man, he was, he was just a rock-solid, godly man. He's older now, uh, not in good health, still living in the same house. Uh, he actually ran a convenience store for years and years and years in that little community. We all called it Paul's Mall. And I about wrecked a truck and killed, got killed in the parking lot at Paul's Mall, but God was uh, better to me than I was driving. So we were all going fishing with Brother Paul. Just a time of fellowship. Uh, my dad, the pastor, and Brother Paul, called him the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul, the chairman of the deacons, Paul's wife, Avis. Sister Avis, she's with the Lord now, but Sister Avis was my Sunday school teacher when I was the Silla's age, a little guy. And she used to bring me bags of sour cream and onion potato chips. And load me up on junk food and send me home. And now Sunday school teachers here are doing me the same favor. Um, but I remember this fishing trip that night because even though my whole family was supposed to go on this, you know, kind of night of fellowship and fun on the lake, I was the only one that ended up and went because the weekend before that Monday, my grandfather at 56 years old had his first heart attack. And he was in the hospital that night. And I guess the thought process was that Jesse's 11 or 12. He doesn't need to be around all this depressing, grown-up hospital stuff. Let him go fish and let him go have a, have a good time and, you know, not worry about all of that scary stuff. What I didn't know that night, that I know now, is that that started a series of conversations and, and a long process in our family where we started to learn words like heart disease heart failure, heart catheterizations, stents, bypass surgeries, disabilities, valve replacements, oxygen concentrators, hospice care. You've had those same conversations, I'm sure. Most of us know more about heart disease than we would like to. It's the number one killer of people in America. And, and eventually my grandfather... Um, some years later, in 2011, a week after he turned 70 years old, my grandfather had his last heart attack. Sharon Heights, churches die of heart disease too. And I want to show you one today in Revelation chapter 2. So take your Bible and turn there with me if you would, please. Revelation chapter 2 and verse number 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently. 
and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. Now, I'm sure that most of you know today that the book of the Revelation is notoriously hard to interpret. G.K. Chesterton, who was a Roman Catholic writer from England uh, way back many, many years ago, he said this about the book of the Revelation. He said that St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, but he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. And what he said was, there's a lot of things that are really weird in the book of the Revelation, but nobody's ever as weird as the people who try and explain it. And so I might as well just throw my hat in the ring this morning, right? And just tell you that I think for the most part, most people interpret the book of the Revelation wrong. In fact, I've joked with Corey before that the very last thing I'm ever going to do as your pastor is preach through the book of the Revelation because you just won't believe it. And then I'll just have to leave, just honestly. And one of the chief ways that, that we get it wrong is that all we see is the moon turning to blood and stars falling from the sky and the Antichrist, who's never actually mentioned in the book of the Revelation, the mark of the beast, all of this other stuff that, that captures our attention. And we miss two important facts that are right in the beginning of the book of the Revelation. First of all, that this is a book about Jesus. The book is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. This is not a book about how somebody snuck in some nanotechnology microchip in your COVID vaccine. All right, that's not what this book's about. This is a book like the rest of the Bible that is about Jesus. The second fact that we miss is that this book about Jesus is written to the church. It's written to seven actual, real, historical congregations. And they're named for us in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. These are churches that had unique cultures, unique problems, unique opportunities, unique difficulties. Each one that needed a unique message from Jesus for their time and for their place. And in some way or another... All of the things said about Jesus in this book are designed to minister to the churches that are mentioned in this book and to us today. Every one of the seven letters in the book of the Revelation ends with this phrase, this invitation, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. This letter is very much for you. But it was also for these churches, for our church. And the first letter to the first church is given here in what we've just read to the church of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus was a, a major metropolitan hub in the ancient world. This was a, a cultural powerhouse. This was one of the places to be in the time of the New Testament. It was significant. It was important. The city of Ephesus was leading the way in so many things. And the church of Ephesus was a lot like its hometown. This is a church that had an incredible history. The church of Ephesus was founded by the Apostle Paul. You can read about that in the book of Acts. In chapter number 18, the Apostle Paul comes into the city of Ephesus. He's preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And the people respond in such a dramatic way that the city is caught up in revival. And the revival is so overwhelming that there are people actually being saved out of witchcraft. Saved out of the occult. And they are bringing all of their spell books. They're bringing all of their copies of Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. And they're burning them and saying, we don't want anything from here on out but Jesus. Give us Jesus. Give us the gospel. Give us the word. He has made us entirely new. And we love him and we want him. Eventually there's a riot in the city of Ephesus and Paul's kicked out of town. But Paul later would write a letter to the church in Ephesus. It's in your Bible. It's the letter that we call Ephesians. Some of the greatest theological truths that God has ever given men are in the six chapters of the book of Ephesians. This church had the original copy, probably framed, hanging up in the lobby somewhere. This is what Paul wrote to us. This church had been pastored by Paul's mentee, Timothy. 
He had served and labored among this congregation. It's likely that John himself had probably served as a leader, maybe a pastor of this church at some time. John, who followed Jesus himself, had stood and preached the word. And now he's writing to this congregation. They had a past that they could be proud of. And now they find that they have a letter from John the Apostle, from the Spirit of God, from the Lord Jesus, and they cannot wait to hear Jesus brag on everything they are and everything they have been and everything that they have done. And the letter begins with Jesus saying, I know your works, I know how busy you are. This is how the diagnosis begins. I know that you have every single spare second on your calendar, chock full of ministry activity. You are busy. Monday mornings, your senior citizens' contemporary praise breakdance team meets together for rehearsals. On Tuesday, you've got your community groups in the morning and your life groups at night. Your recovery ministry meets in the afternoon. On Wednesday night, your kids' crusader camps comes together. On Thursdays, you've got this ministry, this opportunity. This outing is going to be for the youth group on Friday. And then you've got so much happening on Sunday through your preaching services and through your music. People are running around the building in just a, 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 an incredible amount of energy. And what seems to be excitement for Jesus, these people are busy. And I read about this church in these verses, and man, I think there's a lot of Sharon Heights here. Sharon Heights, you have a past that you ought to be proud of. Like the church, that would have been a good place for an amen. You have a past you ought to be proud of. You can say like the people of God have always been able to say, God hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Now, he alone gets the glory for it. But you've got to experience it. You've got to see it. You've got to see God do the miraculous. You've got to witness God do the impossible. You've got to see people prayed into the family of God. You've got to see diseases healed. Families put back together. And y'all, you're busy. I've been in church my whole life. I've never been in a place that's busier than this church. There's always more to do than can possibly be done. You've never met a sign-up sheet that you couldn't fill up. You've never met an idea that you couldn't incorporate. You've never met a challenge that you couldn't conquer. You've never met anything that you didn't want to put your blood, your sweat, and tears into. And those are all good things. And the Lord even says about this church in verse number 6, He said, you have this going for you. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, unfortunately, we don't know who the Nicolaitans were. We know Jesus hated them. And we know that the church of Ephesus hated them. It's a good thing for churches to hate what Jesus hates. It really is. A lot of churches today don't want to hate on anything. And, and this church, they, they hated in the right direction. And when they hear their test results from Dr. Jesus, when they have their checkup, man, everything seems to be going so good. But then in verse number 4, the EKG result comes back. And Jesus says to the church, I have this against you. You've got heart problems. You've abandoned the love that you had at first, or you've left your first love. So take the, main, take the plain meaning of this text. This is a church that was busy. This was a church that valued sound teaching. This is a church that seemed to be getting everything right, and they did not love Jesus. They loved being busy for Jesus. They didn't love Jesus. They loved having services where they talked about Jesus. But they didn't love Jesus. They loved being seen, active for Jesus. But they did not love Jesus. Somewhere along the way, the passion had cooled down. Their hearts had grown cold. And their church had become about anything and everything other than their love for Jesus. And Jesus says, here's the diagnosis. You've left your first love. Sharon Heights Baptist Church, you've left your first love. We need to hear the letter from the Lord Jesus to his church this morning. Because our church has heart problems. Now, I'm going to talk to you about that in just a minute. And it's not going to be fun. I'm sorry. But 
Before I talk to you about you, I want to talk to you about me. Because an honest reading of my heart lately leads me to conclude that so many ways in left that, that, that I have left my first love. I don't love Jesus the way I want to. I don't love Jesus the way he deserves. I love preaching about Jesus more than I love Jesus. I love being busy for him more than I love him. I love reading what great men have written about him more than I love him. I love my identity known as somebody who preaches Christ, is busy for Christ, active for him, more than I love Jesus. Yes, I read my Bible every day. Most every day. I've got, I've got kids at the house, and so it's different for us. Sometimes there's too many kids and not enough coffee, you know? But I read my Bible most every day. I pray most every day. But more often than not, those things, Brother Terry, they're just part of the job. You do it because it's what you have to do. There's no real love for Jesus at the middle of it. I am not here before you today to confess some kind of scandalous, disqualifying sin. But there are worse things than stealing the church's money and running away with the secretary and being addicted to drugs. And that is just, you don't love him anymore. And I've found myself in that place for any number of reasons. came to be the pastor at Sharon Heights in September of 2018. Seems like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? Um, I haven't shared this publicly with, with many of you. I've told some of you. Amy knows. But when I received the phone call that Brother Terry was leaving this church and why he was leaving this church, he was one of my best friends in the world, and that broke my heart, confused me devastated me for him and his family and for you. But I sensed within a month that this church would be reaching out to me about becoming the next pastor here. Now, I want to go ahead and just tell you that the Lord doesn't do that kind of stuff for me. I don't have dreams. I don't have visions. The Lord doesn't tell me what's coming next. I read my Bible and pray and just limp along the best that I can. But I, I sensed that, that God would send me here. Sure enough, in May, Brother Brad, the chairman of your search committee, reached out to me and went through all that process and met with him and interviewed with him. And Brother Brad could tell you, I did everything I could not to come. I did. I told Brother Brad I wasn't coming. He said, well, we're going to pray about it for a week and get back with you. Of course, you know how it turned out. Here I am. And I, I felt like Then, I'll tell you now, that I'm here because God called me to be here. Um, not because it was something I just wanted to do. But, with that being said, I'm going to tell you today, my motives were not always great in coming here. My motives aren't great in anything that I do. Yours aren't either. But, I naively and pridefully, pridefully thought, that, you know, as great as my preaching is, as smart as I am, charming as I am, the, being the gifted administrator that I am, <laughs> can't even say that with a straight face now. I'll come to Sharon Heights, a man in six, eight weeks, buddy, we'll have a revival that'll be so great. They'll have to call the great awakening the good awakening. It'll be unlike anything the world's ever seen. And I realize how much of my flesh has been in the way of what God wants to do here. Because, man, I'm a sinner. I love Jesse more than I love Jesus. Over the 14 years of pastoral ministry, 14 years today, Mark, it's 14 years today that the very first church I pastored voted me in as their pastor. Over the 14 years of pastoral ministry, I'm just going to tell you, I have done almost everything that I've done Almost every decision I've made, 
in some way has been affected by fear of what people think about me. I've spent more time, especially in the second half of my ministry, I've spent more time really worried more about filling up a church than living filled with the Spirit. Um, I've spent more time trying to keep grumpy, hateful Baptists happy than I have trying to tell lost people about Jesus. Because I was worried about what they think. And it's affected my attitude. It's affected my preaching. It's affected our home. It's affected probably my health physically and mentally. It's affected me in any number of ways. And so I just came to church today today that I quit. I'm not leaving you. I'm not quitting my job. But I'm not going to play dress up anymore. I'm not going to play games anymore. I'm not going to live the rest of my life trying to impress people who are never going to be won over. All right? I'm done. For the second half of my life, God willing, for the second half of my life, I want to be marked by loving the one who loved me and gave himself for my sins. Because I'm 36 years old, on average, I've got about that many more left. Of course, I've already told you about my granddaddy's genes. I probably don't have that, many, that much more left. Um, and they're going to go by quick. And when they do, I'm going to meet him. And I don't know what he's going to say. But he's going to say, Jesse, what did you do with the life I gave you? And I'm going to have to answer for a lot I don't want to answer for. But by his grace, I'm going to be able to say, Lord, you did a work in me in the 2020s. Remember them? Lord, you did a work in my heart. And you brought me out of all the religious games and the nonsense. Lord, I did my best to love you with everything I was and tell other people how much you love them. And so, church, today I repent to you. If my attitude has not been right, if my words have not been right, if my example has not been right, I apologize. I need you to forgive me. But God did call me here to be your pastor. I believe that. And even if nothing else, I am standing here today as your pastor because on the last Sunday of July in 2018, 87% of your congregation voted me in to be your pastor. And so I am your pastor. And now I'm going to talk to you like your pastor. And I'm going to tell you, Sharon Heights, you have lost your first love. You've lost your first love. So, Brother Jesse, who are you talking to? What are you talking about today? Well, I'll just say this. I'm not talking to everybody here. If you're sitting here thinking, well, I know he's going to talk to them and he's going to blast them, I'm probably talking to you. So he that hath ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We worry in our church body more about cliques than the people that we let slip through the cracks. We give ourselves over to the work of the devil and to our flesh. We're so quick to express our opinions in anger, in vitriol, show sin to people. We come to church and we'd rather find something to complain about than something to worship over. You complain to the pastor, have it on good authority. You complain to the pastor about things you don't like more than you do tell people about Jesus. Sharon Heights, you've let terrible things that you've been through take your eyes off of him, put it on men and their sinfulness. We've made all this about us. And we've become a church that's doing everything except loving Jesus. We get mad. We threaten to take our ball and go home. Because that'll show them. We pay our tithes thinking that giving our tithes is really just a means to buy influence. We fight. Refuse to forgive. Try to play politics and win people over to our side. We've let COVID reveal what's been under the surface here for a long time. And that is that we don't love Jesus. We don't. We just want other people to think we love him. I believe, I say this with all sensitivity, we have staff members and deacons in our church that are just phoning it in. Your families aren't right. Your hearts aren't right. 
we would rather have a culture here that pushes away young leaders, growing leaders, than yield our own preferences. You say, Brother Jesse, how can we know we've left our first love? It's really, really simple. Jesus says, by this shall all men know that you're my disciple, that you have love for one another. John 13, 35, if you love Jesus, you will love his people and you will love his mission. It's that simple. And so Dr. Jesus comes to the church at Ephesus and he comes to us today and he says, you've left your first love, you've got heart problems. And then he tells them the consequences of it. And it's not a threat, it's just a prognosis. He says to them, here's what's going to happen to you if something doesn't change. Many of you have had that conversation with a doctor. If you don't get off the sweets, if you don't get on this medicine, if you don't get on a treadmill, here's what's coming. And Jesus says to the church, if you look in Revelation 2, and he says to them in verse number 5, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Jesus gives them a prescription, which we'll look at in a moment, but the prognosis is when he comes to them and he tells them, I will remove your lampstand. Jesus says, I, the Lord and the head of the church, will cause it to be that your church will cease to exist. He's saying, you've let your love for Jesus become just such a smoldering ember. The Lord says, I will come and I will. Jesus says, I will end it. The Lord Jesus is simply not interested in a church that doesn't love him. He's not. He says, I'm not going to be a part of it. I'm not going to allow it to continue to exist. So Sharon Heights, hear me today. I mentioned this last Sunday night. For those of you that were here, the Bible emphatically states that when a person believes in Jesus as their Savior, that person is saved for good and that person is saved forever. The Bible declares without apology on nearly every page, and it can't be any other way according to the way the Bible thinks about our salvation. The Bible tells us that a believer is eternally secure. The Bible teaches the eternal security of the believer. There's no other way to read it. But the Bible never teaches the eternal security of a local church. There is no church in Ephesus today. None. Sharon Heights, without the remedy that Jesus prescribes here in Ephesians or Revelation 2, you've got about 10 years. You've got about 10 years until it just ends. Now, you'll be able to keep paying the bills for a while got enough people where you'll be able to keep the lights on and be able to pay the preacher. But are you really interested in a church that doesn't love Jesus anymore? Does that excite any of you today? Does that intrigue you? He's not interested in it. Jesus says, I will come and remove the lampstand. Sharon Heights, you've been through a lot, probably more than any church that I know. Pastoral failures, staffing disasters, pandemic and you've survived it. By the grace of God, you've survived it. But you can't survive when He withdraws His presence. Nor should you want to. So what do we do? Well, here's, here's the prescription Jesus gives. Is there hope? Is there hope? Yes. Yes, there is hope. What is the hope? Jesus tells us in verse number 4. Or verse number 5, rather. And He almost alliterates it so Baptists can remember it. All these words almost start with R. Remember. Remember from where you're fallen. Repent. And do the first works. We'll say return and do the first works. What do we do? Brother Jesse, what do we do? Church, this is the only path forward. I'm going to give it to you today. This is it. This is all there is. The only path forward for you, first of all, is to remember. Before Jesus gives them hard words about their own hearts, Jesus calls them back to the memory of better days. And he says, remember where you've been. Remember what you've had. Remember what it used to be like when you were head over heels in love with Jesus. And when you could not get enough of him, and you wanted everything that he had to give you, and you were all in for what Jesus wanted to do with you, Jesus says, remember. So Sharon Heights, do you remember that? Do you remember? Do you remember when the altars used to be full? Do you remember when you were excited to come to church? Do you remember when people would come to church and encourage one another instead of smiling in each other's face and then stabbing them in the back? Do you remember that? Do you remember when you used to go out passionately and tell your neighbors about Jesus? Do you remember when 
you were able to raise your hands in worship and magnify Him? Do you remember that? Some of you today tragically have gone so far you don't remember anymore. You think that it's always been the way that it is now. And I don't know if there's any hope for you. But some of you do remember. Some of you do remember. Back in your mind somewhere, there's a, me a memory of what God has done before. And you know instinctively that He can do it again. And you want Him to do it again. And you do not want to live another minute in a church that isn't marked by its love for Jesus. God bless you. To you, the second part of the remedy is that you repent. Repent. Today, I'm calling you, I'm calling our church to repentance. To lay down your sin. To lay down unforgiveness. To give up your power trips. To quit fighting your turf wars. To quit trying to take control. To admit your laziness. To admit that you've been wrong. And then to lay it down forever. The hard thing about repentance is basically all of it. But the good thing about repentance, the sweet thing about repentance, is that we are safe to bring our sins to Jesus. Yeah. Now here's what I'm not going to let you do today. I'm not going to let you come at the end of this service and come to the altar and go through some routine so that you can feel better about all this. Genuine repentance means change. You can't just come to an altar and say, Lord, I'm sorry, and then leave pretending like you've handled it between you and Jesus. If you have unforgiveness in your heart and broken relationships in this church body, you need to go to those people and you need to make it right or you have not repented. You have not repented and it's a lie. So I handled it between me and the Lord. That's a lie. It's a misunderstanding of Scripture. You can't just come to the altar and say, well, Lord, I need to do a little bit better. Maybe you do need to do a little bit better. But true repentance is going to mean change. It's going to mean that you're different. And it's not a short-term change that says, well, Brother Jesse seemed kind of maybe like he is a little hacked off. I don't know what that was the other week when he was over there in Revelation. And so we're going to step it up for a couple of weeks until he backs off some. Folks, this ain't about me. This ain't about me. For all I know, God's going to call me to be a missionary to Abu Dhabi. And I'm not going to be here in six months. I don't know. For all I know, the Lord might call me home and I'll be in heaven tomorrow. I don't know. Amy hates it when I say stuff like that. But, it, I mean, I don't know. Y'all will be, be just fine without Brother Jesse. But you're not going to be okay without Jesus. You're not going to be okay without him. Then he says, do the works you did at first. Remember the first works. Sharon Heights, church is not complicated. It's not complicated. It's not complicated. Bury yourself in your Bible. Get on your knees. Tell somebody about Jesus. Give yourself to him. And his love for you no matter where it takes you. And no matter what it does in you. The honeymoon doesn't have to end. Because I promise you this. His love for you has not changed. His love for you has not changed. And so when Jesus says return and do the first works. Here's how that can look for you. In the short term. In the life of this church. Y'all know, I hope, that we're having a community carnival on the day before Easter. That's, what, April the 16th? We're going to be at the Brookside Ball Field. And we're doing that because we need to get to know our community. If we're going to share the gospel with them, we need to get to know them. We ought to have all hands on deck for that event. All hands on deck for that event. The Wednesday before, on April the 13th, every phase of our church... Those of us that meet for Bible study, our kids, our youth, we're all going out in the neighborhood to canvas our neighborhood and invite people to come and let them know that we're here and we're praying. Then we're going to have Easter services on April the 17th. Invite somebody to come to church with you. Say, Brother Jesse, they won't come. If you don't invite them, I know they won't come. I know they won't come. On Easter Sunday, God willing, I'm going to put something in your hand asking you a simple question that I want you to answer for me. And that I'm going to take and introduce a new evangelism strategy to our church body to get you talking about the Bible to people again. Because it's so easy to, to think that evangelism is, is just giving somebody a sales pitch 
And that's not the way they did it in Scripture at all. It's about telling a story. It's not about a sales pitch. God willing, over the next few months, we're going to have a full slate of DT classes. The first Sunday in May, I'm going to begin preaching. And this is all Lord willing. I'm going to begin preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians. And you talk about a church that was a mess. But that was a place for saints and sinners. And Jesus was in the middle of all of it, showing his love and working among those people. And that's all we are, a mess of saints and sinners who need Jesus. A place where he's at work. Tonight, 6 o'clock, during our prayer meeting service, we're going to have just a service of celebration and confession. Going to walk with you through laying down some stuff in your past. Thanking God for what He's done. Confessing your sins. And moving forward. For the glory of the Lord. I want to address one thing that seems to be seems to have been an ever-present elephant in the room since before I became your pastor. Because I think it needs to be addressed. When a church has experienced failures in leadership, there's an undercurrent of distrust that works its way upward. You wonder, how can I trust anybody in this position if these other people seem to have deceived and then let me down? And so before I became your pastor, there was a particular theological persuasion that you think I hold. It sounds something like communism. You think, I don't think he's a communist. I'm not. And, and you've heard all kinds of horrible things, I believe, about the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination, and you think, I don't know what that Calvinism stuff, but I know I don't believe it, and I don't like it, so I'm watching him. And you've been taught by people that have never wanted to talk to you about the Bible before, but had another agenda. You've been taught by them that there's something wrong with doctrinal positions. You're not sure if I hold or not. So here's what I'm going to do. Tonight at five, I may regret this for the rest of my life, but I'm not eat up with sense anyway. Tonight at five o'clock, I'm glad y'all thought that was a joke. Tonight at five o'clock, my regular DT class, we'll just postpone that. Tonight at five o'clock, meet me in the fellowship hall because they'll be using the sanctuary. You can ask me any question you want to ask me about the Bible, about election, about predestination, about John Calvin, about Theodore Beza. You say, who's that? Exactly. Ask me any question you want to ask me. And I promise you this. There are things I believe about the Bible that I am wrong about. But your pastor is not a liar. I will tell you the truth. If it kills you, kills me, and kills all of us, I'll tell you the truth. And so come tonight at 5 o'clock. And if it's just me, I'll go to my office and take a nap. That'd be great. <laughs> but I am not going to give you any reason to distrust me. And I want to serve you, if I can, and help you. Not because I want you to agree with me about everything I believe, but because we need to repent, move forward, and breathe the clear air of what God wants to do here. Sharon Heights. The first time I ever met you in August of 2016, I told you that our God is a God who lavishes His love on prodigal sons. And I still absolutely believe that. But listen to that. He loves prodigal sons. He loves those in the family that are a long way away from Him. And when they come home, He wraps them up in His grace. And He showers them with His love. And He wipes the filth off of them. And He says, welcome home. Let's start over. Let's rejoice and let's start fresh. Sharon Heights, today your God and your Father and your Savior is inviting you to come home. As in inviting you to start fresh. If He loved you when you were the worst sinner in the world, and bless His name, He did. If He loved you when you were the worst sinner in the world, He loves you now that you've been the worst saint in the world. And this whole letter, this whole letter to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, the whole thing is an expression of His love for the church. Because He didn't just let them go. He didn't just say, if that's the way you want it, fine, have it. I'll hit the road and you can do your own thing. But he comes to them in spite of their lovelessness. And he says, I love you and I want to change you. Come home and let's start fresh. That's what I'm inviting you to do today, to come home and start fresh. And say, Lord, my heart has been cold for you for, you for so long. 
Lord, I want to start fresh. What in the world would God do at Sharon Heights Baptist Church if we were about nothing but Jesus' love for us and our love for Him? I don't know. But it would be as big as heaven itself. I know I've already fried some circuits today, so I'm going to do one more and I'm going to quit. When I met with the search committee about becoming your next pastor, they asked me, you know, a number of questions about anything and everything you can imagine. Do I have any tattoos? No, I don't. Still don't. What kind of music do I listen to? None of your business. All this kind of stuff. <laughs> the good kind. That's what everybody does, right? And in a moment of tears, one of the ladies in the church and on that search committee expressed her heart and said she was brokenhearted about the reputation this church has earned in its community through the sins of people in the past. I heard that. We talked about it. And I told her honestly what I believed at that time. I said, I think it would be good for your church to come up with a new name and have a new identity. Now, I know that's a radical, terrifying, scary thing. I'm not proposing that. What I am telling you that for is to tell you this. A new name would do no good without new hearts. The only way to start fresh is to have new hearts. Now, there's some of you that are here this morning that are just visiting with us. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Everybody in this world is a mess, and Jesus loves messy people. I'll tell you that. But there are some of you that are here today. Boy, you love Jesus with everything in you. And you're trying your best to be faithful. And you're trying the best to be in the Word. And you're trying your best to pray. And you're trying your best to serve. And you're trying to do everything you can to keep the fire burning. Carry on. Keep looking to Him. Don't look around. Just keep looking to Jesus. His church is not always great. But He is. Keep pursuing Him. Keep loving Him. And for the rest of you, repent. Remember. Return. Let's stand together today. Brother Gary, Shanda, we're not going to sing an invitation today. They're just going to play one. Since I've been in, well, since I've been in church this week, I've talked to folks that have lost family members, carrying the burden of grief and death. Dad came to me and expressed difficulties of being a dad, challenges of a child. There are people around us today that are dying from drug addiction, abuse. Folks, those people need a church that loves Jesus. They don't need a bunch of people playing the game. So the invitation today is for you to come and repent. Pour your heart out to the Lord. Tell Him what He knows. Lord, I've let my love for you cool, and I cannot do it anymore. I don't want to do it anymore. Jesus, I want to walk with you. We'll give you time to do that today. And you need to. And the altar's open. Stubbornness will kill you. Remember from where you're falling. Repent. Do the first works. Garbage that gets your eyes off of Jesus will choke the life out of you. And God is calling our church today in a unique moment and in a unique way to say, by your grace and for your glory, we're not going to be about anything else your love for us and our love for you. We've got dads in this church today that need to grab their family, need to come and say, God, I've been about everything else but you and I've led my family away from you. We've got deacons that need to come and say, God, I have not been faithful in my service. People that have led in this church for years that you've led excuses, break down your commitment and your passion. We've got senior citizens here 
And yeah, you may be in the fourth quarter of life, but listen, the fourth quarter is the most important quarter. And in some ways, it's the only one that really counts. You need to come and you need to dedicate that to the Lord and say, Lord, I am yours. And I give myself to you. For whatever I have left to do, God, I'm yours. I'm not going to carry sin. I'm not going to carry unforgiveness. I'm not going to carry somebody else's grudge. But Lord, I'm going to be about Jesus. No matter what anybody else does. You need to come and say, Lord, this is not my church. This is not Brother Jesse's church. This is not Brother Terry's church. This is not Brother Jason's church. This isn't the committee on subcommittee's church. Lord, this is your church. God, we want you to take it and do with it what you want to do. Because, God, we know what we can produce in our own flesh. God, we've had enough of it. We want what your spirit can produce. Your spirit will produce people that love Jesus and are passionate about him. pray together this morning and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for your church. Lord, none of us would have ever heard the gospel were it not for your people who communicated it to us. 